You're listening to The Profile. Hello and welcome to The Profile podcast. I'm Andy Peck. For the past 17 years, I've been interviewing leaders in the church and the wider culture. In the coming weeks, you'll be hearing the best of these conversations, plus some brand new ones as well. It was leadership expert John Maxwell who famously said, leadership is influence. Some have massive influence through their role as a leader of a church or business, a charity or a family. Others have influence in their neighbourhood, a network of friends or through leisure interests. It's our prayer that these conversations will help you in whatever spheres you have influence. This show is brought to you by Premier Christianity Magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get full online access and the print magazine every month by becoming a subscriber. See special offers available now at premierchristianity.com. It was a management guru, Peter Drucker, who famously said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. This was said in the context of creating a culture within a business organisation. But anyone who works within a church environment becomes very aware of how important culture is. Many church strategies have failed because they've failed to understand how the culture is impacting both the church and the people they're seeking to reach. And of course, the problem with culture is that we're not always aware of it, how it's influencing us and those we're speaking to. Well, I'm joined this week by someone who has reflected and researched how British and Canadian evangelicals are affected by culture and has looked at the challenges of passing on the faith when so many children and young people have a different range of beliefs to the church. His name is Professor Sam Reimer, and his book is entitled Caught in the Current British and Canadian Evangelicals in an Age of Self-Spirituality. And he joins me today from his home in New Brunswick in eastern Canada. And I'm very much looking forward to learning his insights. So, Sam, welcome to The Leadership Show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Uh, well, great to have you uh, on the show. And you have spent some time in the northeast of the UK in preparation for the book, I understand. That's correct. So I was delighted to uh, be Richardson Fellow at Durham University for three months in 2018. And of course, we traveled all over your beautiful country and uh, doing interviews with active evangelicals and clergy. Uh, so we're in London and we were in Sheffield and Manchester and several other places in between. So it was a wonderful time. That's great. Great. Well, great to have you for that reason, as well as um, uh, as well as for the excellent book. Uh, so I had a chance to see a copy. Um, what got you interested in this topic, uh, Sam? Yeah, so um, I began my career uh, at the University of Notre Dame, and uh, I was interested particularly in how evangelicals were different in Canada and the U.S. So I traveled in both countries, talked to a lot of people then, and so I've always kind of been intrigued by this idea of how culture shapes a religious subculture that is quite um distant from the rest of the culture it, that is it tries to maintain boundaries uh to maintain orthodoxy and orthopraxy right 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 belief and right behavior um so that it, it doesn't conform to the world as the bible tells us right so evangelicals have always been uh trying to resist some at least of the influences of society uh, while at the same time they're active within society so be in the world but not of it right 
And so um, I was intrigued to find differences between Canada and the U.S. And that interest has just kind of continued. And so I decided, well, let's see what's going on if we do some uh, analysis of British and Canadian evangelicals, which are probably even closer, uh, more similar than, especially now, uh, the Canadian and American uh, evangelicals, though a lot of similarities that are international. So, yeah, it's always been an interest of mine, Andy. Sure. And, and you grew up in Canada yourself? I most of my time has been in Canada, but I actually was an MK, a missionary kid who grew up in Japan. So the idea of cross-cultural comparison has always been a bit intriguing and probably why I got into sociology. Indeed, indeed. Um, So you engaged in a lot of interviews. This is not just a couple of people, is it? This is a substantive uh, piece of research. Exactly. So um, about 80 interviews in uh, England and another 40 or so in Canada. I did less in Canada because I had a lot of experience with Canadian evangelicals already. Uh, But uh, 67 different clergy, 67 different churches, all evangelical um, and in a lot of places in England. So and probably close to uh, 60 active evangelical laity which were recommended by the clergy. So I knew I got people who were active in their churches or parishes. And um, yeah, so actually what I wanted to do with that sample was to sort of stack the deck the deck against societal influences. So I thought, well, if I got active evangelicals who resist some of the influence of the culture and are embedded in their congregations, surely that would be a sample that would be least affected uh, by the cultural currents that are going around. And yet, um, as the book shows, uh, there's quite a, quite a bit of evidence of the cultural milieu, the cultural zeitgeist uh, getting into uh, into the churches and the, and the, and the laity there. Sure. Uh, and as often the case, um, someone starts off with a premise doing research um, and maybe that adjusts as time go- goes on. Did you find that? I did. Um, and it was partly from the interviews and partly because I was reading more literature on the topic as well. But when I started, I expected that active evangelical laity um, would be aligning themselves pretty closely with their uh, denominational beliefs and practices. Right. And that was largely the case for a lot of the evangelicals I talked to. And then after that, I said, well, if they differ from uh, you know, if they if they uh, distinguish themselves from some of the beliefs uh, that are part of their denomination or group, then I suspect that that would be pretty random because I thought the cultural influences were pretty random. It was like, you know, the new spirituality is you have to find your own path and everybody does what is right in their own eyes and uh, deviates from churches and their beliefs quite freely because they're on their own sort of spiritual spiritual but not religious right they're on their own sort of spiritual path which is individual to them and so i expected evangelicals then to sort of have this sort of eclectic individualistic self-discovery path and so they would vary uh, randomly from denominational belief but that's not what i found what i did find was that the culture was in fact speaking a pretty clear what I call script. It's almost like a play, Andy, where you're expected to follow certain lines and, you know, enter and exit at the right times. The culture speaks quite clearly and in a very clear direction. So in the book, I use this analogy of um, the lake versus the river. And so my idea was that culture was kind of this calm lake. 
and everybody was in kayaks and they, you know, you, you would just say, go find your own place of inner peace or whatever. And everybody would, would scurry off in their own individual directions, uh, wherever they wanted to go. And they would find their own little enclave or clove, you know, uh, in the lake where they would find uh, a peaceful place. Um, but that's not what culture is like. The much better picture is that culture is like a river with a pretty strong current. And everybody is naturally pulled in the same direction, this direction of self-spirituality, this direction of what I call uh, sort of this internal locus of authority. So culture speaks quite clearly in the direction that's pulling people. And so evangelicals even were uh, shaped in ways that were more predictable than I thought. Well, well, um, I mean, that was the surprising thing, particularly with other things came to you that you thought crumbs that was. I really hadn't expected that. Yeah. Um, so part of part of what I found that surprised me was not just that evangelicals were compromising or accommodating to cultural influences in areas of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but that there seems to be this underlying shift, cultural shift, which is driving a lot of the what I call surface symptoms of a much deeper um, subterranean, if you like, uh, direction of this river. And so everybody has the book's title called call this cotton, this current. And this current seems to be largely a move from external authority to internal authority. Um, lots of people in different countries have been talking about this for a while. This is not new with me. Uh, the inward turn, famous philosopher Charles uh, Taylor talks about this, as do sociologists and all um, both sides of the of the Atlantic. Um, so basically, the idea here is that external authority, if we go back a few generations, let's say to the silent generation, which is the generation before the baby boomers, um, they were largely uh, deferred to external authority. At least that's what the culture expected. So if the government tells you to go to war, you go to war. If the teacher tells you to do so-and-so homework, you did so-and-so homework and you didn't question it. If your parents said thus and such, you tend to do that. At least that's where the cultural pressure was. Of course, there's always some people who are rebellious. That all switched with the 1960s. Um, and it was happening before this with the Enlightenment and some other influences. But particularly the 1960s sort of changed the culture. And so the baby boomers, um, after they experienced the sort of rebelliousness, the disestablishment of the 60s, uh, began to question authority. And when you question authority and including religious authority, what has to happen is some sort of authority needs to fill the void. And the authority that fills the void seems to be this self internal locus of authority uh, position. So largely what happens is people now look to themselves and their own inner sense, their own int intuition to guide them. So we hear in culture, you have to be true to yourself. You have to find your own path. Um, and that includes religiosity. So in our spiritual quest to find our own selves, <laughs> to find our own wholeness, uh, we largely view ourselves as our as the authority. We have to sense that it is right for us. And so whatever we do, the ultimate authority is our own sort of grid. Does this fit with my own inner sense? Uh, does this resonate with my heart? And 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 Sam, you you quoted um, Adam Wolf early on in yeah. your book. In every aspect of the religious life, American faith has met American culture, and American culture has triumphed. Uh, and you've obviously, in what you've said thus far, you've you know emphasised that that quote is 
is very much the case. And um, I'm just wondering to the, the extent to which church leaders really realize the extent to which even they have been affected. Um, yeah. I say we, I mean, maybe I should use the we word rather than they, but yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely fair, Andy. And actually, I was very impressed by the clergy that I talked to um, had a pretty good sense of what they were dealing with. This sort of, um, you know, I'm my own God, small g, right? I, I, I'm guiding um, my own spiritual quest. And so what happens is as I'm on my own personal journey, if that path intersects for a time with a church, um, then I might find the church helpful, but it's only helpful to the degree that it actually helps me find my own way, right? And so I'm naturally in the pew going, okay, that I agree with that. I don't agree with that. You know, that's helpful. That resonates with my heart. That doesn't. And so clergy sort of have this, um, I don't know, it, it's it's a harder it's a it's a harder hurdle to to jump in that they um, are. Um, e evaluated and are somewhat suspect simply because they are a religious authority, which is external to who I really am. So, um, yes, the culture has triumphed, as Alan Wolf says, and that culture is not only American, but it is Western. It is at least Western, actually. It's becoming international and um, exists. Uh, and th this is this is part of what I think clergy need to understand is that it doesn't exist just in people's minds. Um, institutions in our society are carriers of this cultural script, this cultural narrative, the cultural zeitgeist. So uh, students get this in schools and they're expected to find out who they are for themselves, right? They're expected to find their own identity and discover themselves in their own path. And they're getting that in other institutions, which are now, you know, uh, individual focused in servicing the individual and the own individual's unique needs. And so this is coming in from all sources, um, not just, you know, existing some other minds. There's institutional carriers, as I say in the book. And and obviously consumerism feeds one massively into that. So really? if you're yes, if you're all, all the money system, people are selling you adverts, which are, are conveying this message because they think that's the message you want to hear to buy their this product. Exactly true. Yeah. So somehow this uh, this product will enhance my own development of who I am to become, you know, all I hope I can be. So uh, it, yeah, that's definitely the switch, including the way we, we market products. Well, Sam, you've very helpfully um, identified that the, the challenges we let's try and perhaps start to, to, to link um, this material with, with some of the solutions, or at least some of how church leaders and other leaders need to be um, in Sort of fighting back, if if you will. Uh, I mean, church leaders listening have the task of taking the unchanging truths of the scripture, helping their listeners embrace and grow in the gospel. Um, your findings seem to suggest that that you know two hours on a Sunday, if if that, <laughs> uh, is quite a drop in the ocean. If if there's this kind of wave, to use the water metaphor, this tidal wave of culture continuing mm. to come towards us. Um, how in particular would you say that? Um, church leaders need to be fighting back yeah well as i say it's tough because um you, you i mean you have a few options right uh, one of the ways is to try to find a sort of uh secluded cove in the river where the current isn't <laughs> strong isn't so strong that's kind of the sectarian uh, more fundamentalist approach to kind yeah. of protect people 
Uh, other people would say, no, what we got to do is we just got to teach people to be really strong swimmers. Um, and I would say that neither of those approaches are the best way. Um, what I would say is the best way is to come is to provide the people an anchor. And what I mean by that is um, an anchor that is a relational anchor. Of course, the key relational anchor is with Jesus Christ. Uh, but for um, clergy, what they need to do is they need to, if, to the degree that they are able, be that stable, warm, fixed point that people can tether their own um, spirituality to that will keep them uh, from being pulled away by the current, if you like. So I don't know if that analogy works, but that's kind of um, what I see. So what we do know is that people who stay with the faith are those who have both parents in the same pew uh, every Sunday, and they have parents who speak to their children about the faith and engage them in their own spirituality. They are people who demonstrate at home uh, active discipleship, um, not only by what they say, but by what they do as in devotional times. Uh, so kids with those kind of parents uh, tend to stick. They're much more likely to hold under the faith and we find them in the pew uh, on a, a, you know, in, during young adulthood, which is really a, a difficult a transition for a lot of youth. So if clergy can encourage those kind of warm, stable relationships, either with them, which is harder to do, especially in bigger congregations, uh, or with their parents, the parents really have to be resourced to be those kind of anchors for their young people. Um, and uh, so that's what church, that's, that's one of the big tasks, I think, of churches during this time of the current. I think it's very helpful. I can't remember exactly who did the analysis, but I understand that there was a stat saying 50% of uh, young people leave local churches at the age of 18. Mm. But to, to emphasize your point, that goes up to 80% stick with it if both parents are engaged actively in, in their own faith and in the faith of their children. Uh, so obviously, yeah, we, we, we're not talking, we're talking about individuals, not stats, but nevertheless, to emphasize, you know, if you can have a conversation, ongoing conversation with your children and you're embodying that level of leadership, then then clearly th there's a big, use the word chance, you have a better chance of, of seeing, you know, ongoing walk with Christ carrying on. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And, um, I mean, we also need to emphasize not just parents here, but other adult mentor um, figures, uh, for example, uh, connecting youth with um, youth or young adults with mature Christians in the church um, is a great decision for this sort of mentoring one on one relationship. Youth leaders, of course, are important. And what youth leaders need to think about is how do I maintain that stability after the youth leaves town and goes to uni right like how do we how do we help kids through that very tough transition into young adulthood and those kind of anchors still need to be there even when the kid leaves home yeah absolutely um some u.s christians would argue that the uk is ahead of them when it comes to secularism uh would that be a similar comment made by canadians yeah that's a great question um you are right that uh, um, I think Americans should pay particular attention to where 
uh, the UK and Canada are going, because um, I think that this move toward post-Christendom, this move toward uh, secularism that you talk about, is uh, strongly accompanied by this move toward internal authority. Um, and so those are whatever parallel changes. And so, yes, I do see the U.S. going that direction. Um, where the U.S. exactly is going is a bit of a question because, of course, right now, um, especially evangelicalism, is tied with a Christian nationalism and a politicization of religion in, in the U.S. that could further sort of polarize that country. And um, that sort of polarization and tension mm. can create uh, a very strongly bounded but active uh, mm. religiosity because it's kind of propped up, if you like, um, by political sentiment. Yeah. Um, so will they follow the path of Canada and the U.S.? I think in some ways, uh, sorry, in Canada and Britain, I think in some ways they will. Um, and I would say that Canada is, that the U.K., when we compare Canada and the U.K., um, the U.K. is further down the post-Christendom path, uh, like as far as church participation goes, uh, we would be maybe in 10% and the UK in the 5% range uh, as far as weekly attenders go. Um, but uh, so we we are going that direction. There's no doubt about that in Canada. But in a lot of ways, the discomfort with religious authority in Canada, I think, would be at least as far along as it is in UK, where there, at least there's this vestige of Anglican respect, maybe in the UK, that doesn't exist in Canada. Sure. Well, certainly the the language of evangelical in the UK for some people has become a, um, a tarnished word because of the U S situation with the politicization of things. And I know many people who would be evangelical in faith, but wouldn't use the language of evangelical because of what it denotes. And so would, yeah. would, would come from another term like following the teaching of Jesus or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. because no, you know, and, and born again, christians has similar sort of language i'm afraid which uh, has a has has overtones um sadly we're coming to the end sam of, of our conversation um mm -hmm. but um i was interested in um the fact that there are a kind of a range of responses that evangelicals might make uh which you kind of alluded to in, in your book uh, what would you hope for what would you all kind of if you could, if you well, if you could address the evangelical leaders in the UK, where that possible, and say, look, I've done this research. This is what I suggest you do. What would what would you say? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I think it's a, a key that they understand that the people in the pew are increasingly operating with this internal uh, locus of authority. They are their own authority, and so they can expect that to continue to be. Uh, demonstrated in all kinds of symptoms as far as a deviance from orthodox teaching and, and orthopraxy, particularly in areas of ethics, particularly in areas of sexual ethics, which are very, um, whatever, politicized and, and tense. So they, they're aware of those things. Um, so, but the good news is that in religion of the heart, where your heart sort of dictates uh, what is good and what is right, evangelical community, warm, caring relationships of people around you. And um, it's, it's still very important because it resonates with the heart. I believe things in my heart when they're surrounded by positive, a positive sense 
which is often because it is surrounded by a positive community. So to the degree that we can offer that in a very individualistic world, um, I think is the degree that we will um, continue to have impact uh, in the country around us. And of course, um, as the country moves toward post-Christendom, uh, the uniqueness of evangelicals um, is can be attractive because they offer the sort of community and hope and stability anchors, if you like, um, that uh, society lacks. Well, Sam, thank you for finishing optimistically, <laughs> albeit uh, you know having explored what are, what are the challenges. And um, as as someone once said, truth is our friend on these things, and and yeah. your your book is exposing the truth. Uh, in order that we can heed it and, uh, in God's help, uh, address it and move on from it. So thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you. That was my conversation with Sam Raymer regarding his book, Caught in the Current, British and Canadian Evangelicals in the Age of Self-Spirituality. And if you need to know, the name Raymer is spelt R-E-I-M-E-R. I imagine much of what he said resonates with you. And maybe you are aware of a shift within our culture particularly perhaps if you're, say, over 30 and have seen this change over time towards self-authority. But Sam mentioned to us that if we're to help our church members grow, and especially young people, stick with the faith. The key is to have those who are stable, who are a fixed point of anchor that can keep them from being swept away. And so that means if you're a Christian parent, that means you. If you're an adult at any point in the church, then appropriate relational connection with younger people can be such a blessing and such a help. And if if you are in leadership in a local church and have influence over others spiritually, why not make this relational aim of paramount importance alongside the excellent programs that you provide? It's my joy and privilege to put these shows together every week. My name's Andy Peck. And I look forward to you joining us once again next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.